Let's look at one verse, one key verse before I pray. And that is verse 18. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. Paul writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we confess our faith as we have just done. Based on your word, we thank you for the eternal Lagos, the word who is Christ that we read about in John chapter 1. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and it would be a shame if we are looking at a chapter like Romans 8, which so clearly speaks of the Spirit, if we didn't right now say, Lord, help us, not according to our own efforts, not according to my efforts, but Lord, that we might be pleasing to you through the Spirit. Help us, give us the Holy Spirit, Lord, for this task, for this time. Open our eyes, wake us up to your glory. Thank you, O God, for the person and the work of Christ. We thank you that in many ways, Jesus is the gospel. And we thank you for who Jesus is and for what he has done on the cross. We thank you that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. So help us now. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at one key verse, which we've just read, and I want to look at the entire chapter. I want to keep the whole chapter in mind, I don't mean that we'll look at every single verse or anything like that, but I want to do those two things. We'll look at one key verse, verse 18, and also Romans 8. What is our text this morning? Well, it's, it's Romans 8, the chapter. And so let's look at, uh, uh, read just a bit more. Look at verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Stop right there, at least for the time being. Eight truths from Romans 8. That's the title this morning. That's what we want to do with God's help. Eight truths from Romans 8. Truth number one. Truth number one, and we see this from verse 18. The word is glory. The word is glory. The truth is this. Present suffering is not even worth comparing with future glory. Let me say that again. Present suffering is not even worth comparing with future glory. Look again at verse 18 with me. Paul writes there here, basically in the middle of the chapter, Paul says, for I consider, as as I think about this, for I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is an eternal, listen to me, there is an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs any present suffering. It's not even worth comparing. You may flip with me for just a moment if you want to to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I mentioned already that there's a, there's a hymn that you need to be mindful of. Well, this is a verse that you need to know. You need to have this one tucked away. And it's 2 Corinthians 4.17. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You read on, he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look at that again, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I've described it before like a seesaw where the the future glory sits so heavy that if it were possible to have just a really super long seesaw, that that the suffering in the present would be sitting so far up in the air because our present suffering is real. It is a reality, but but it's light, not to diminish it, but it's almost almost ephemeral. It's It's almost weightless, and future glory is heavy, 
and it weighs down the seesaw, and there's no way that it's going to be at any type of equilibrium. But no. And here he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, this day in age, we perhaps think of Afghanistan. We think here in our own country of a storm that once again ravaged Louisiana. And then, what do you know, it comes up to where I have family in Pennsylvania, and you hear about 45 who have died even in the northeast as this storm made its way, and there was a perfect storm, so to speak, of conditions. In all of these things and in the internal suffering and in all that we go through, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. That's number one, glory. Present suffering is not even worth comparing the focus, the focus is glory. Present suffering is not even worth comparing to future glory. This is a key verse here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He comes back to this idea in Romans 8.30. Look at it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And what does he say at the end of Romans 8.30? And those whom he justified, he also what he glorified. Number two is creation. Creation. Creation waits with eager longing. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He comes to make his blessings known you know the next line, far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. Joy is central to the Christian life. Joy is central to the Christian life. We serve a happy God, and he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Here's the truth as we're thinking about point number two, second truth from Romans 8, creation. Creation fell because of us. And now creation is waiting for our ultimate salvation. It's almost like we might have pity on creation. When Paul talks about creation here, which he introduces in verse 19, he's using what we know what personification is, right? He's not talking about human creation. He's talking about everything that is subhuman creation. He's talking about the physical universe. And we almost would pity creation because creation itself is in a royal mess because of us, because of our first parents. Listen, because of Genesis chapter three, because we sinned, because Adam and Eve sinned, because we have rebelled against God, therefore the curse extends to creation itself. Do you see? Now look at this. He introduces it in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, you see, you see God is doing all of this, him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Creation, Paul speaks of creation like a person here. Creation can't wait. Creation, the physical universe, is like it's craning its neck forward. It's hoping, it's waiting. It's as though the physical universe said, you guys got us into this mess. Now we know that your redemption is coming and we hang on to your coattails and we look forward to the day of your glory. Because listen, Isaiah says we are looking forward to a new creation. Here's Romans 8 in one sense. The creation itself will be renewed and our bodies will be renewed. We are looking to a resurrected world and a resurrected and resurrected bodies. Joy to the world indeed. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Glory, creation, suffering. Glory, creation. Number three, suffering. All of these first three points uh, are ultimately tied to verse 18. We just looked at that second point, which flows out of verse 18. And here, I want you to see, please look with me at verse 18, but also why he said what he said there. Because it was fast on the heels of verse 17. In all of this, glory is the main focus. In all of this, Romans 8 is saying that we can have assurance of our salvation. We are not saved yet. We are not yet saved, at least not finally, at least not fully. We are waiting for our redemption. And he says in Romans chapter 8 that we can have assurance of future glory. We can have hope. That's what Romans 8 is about. It is about confident hope. But this third truth tells us not to marginalize suffering. Dear brothers and sisters, do not marginalize suffering. Do you know that in Philippians chapter 1, the Bible tells us that the Lord God, through Jesus Christ, has given every believer two gifts. The, the gift of being able to believe in him and the gift of suffering. We said it's many times before, we don't say, bring it on. We don't say to suffering, bring it on. But don't marginalize suffering. Don't discount suffering. Let it not take us off guard. Remember what he said in 2 Corinthians 4? So we do not lose heart. He said in verse 18, I consider the sufferings, Romans 8, 18, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Look back at verse 17. We're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see what it says there in the middle of verse 17? The main focus is what it says at the very end, with Jesus, with him, who are you with? If you're with him, you're going to be glorified with him. 
You have a confident hope. But notice what it also says. Notice what it also implies. If you do not suffer with Jesus, listen to me, then you are not a true heir with Jesus. I've shared this before, and I love it. John Newton. John Newton said this, Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. You see, as we take that little illustration from John Newton and as we take Romans 8, 17, we can see at least two things This man in this story was about to inherit what we may call glory. He was going to New York to inherit a large estate. Why? Because he was an heir. Because he was an heir. And yet here John Newton speaks of what? He speaks of the folly of complaining. The folly of complaining. If his carriage broke down a mile from the large estate which he was about to inherit and all you could hear him say over and over again is simply, my carriage is broken. My woe is me. Woe, suffering is real. If if we never suffer, we don't look for suffering. But suffering is real. If we never suffer as believers, Peter says, right, don't suffer for doing something stupid. Don't suffer for being foolish. If we never suffer as believers, then we are not heirs with Christ. Glory, creation, suffering, all of those spring from verse 18, that key verse, and now we widen the lens. Now we take in the whole chapter, number four, There are promises at the very end of Romans chapter 8 and at the beginning, which we would do well to remember and to bank on. There are promises at the very end of Romans chapter 8 and at the beginning that we would do well to remember and bank on. That's a lot. Why don't we just say this? There is no separation. There is no separation. So look at the last verse of Romans 8. Romans 8, 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord just very simply saying here that Romans 8 ends with no separation and Romans 8 begins with what? With no condemnation. The bookends of Romans 8 are no separation, verse 39, verse 31, no condemnation. Listen, the believer in Jesus Christ The believer in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, will never be separated from Christ and will never be condemned by Christ. 
There is, for believers, there is no separation. And the opposite of condemnation is justification. Because we have been justified by faith, therefore nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. And again, this point four, no separation, just simply means that all of Romans 8, what's the point of all of Romans 8? We can have assurance, 100% confidence and hope that on that final day, we will be saved. We're looking forward to a new creation and to new bodies. Number five, glory, creation, suffering, no separation. The word for number five is adoption. Adoption. So fifthly this morning, Crossway, see and give thanks for what may be called the crown jewel of the gospel. Number five, see and give thanks for what may be called the crown jewel of the gospel. And here in just a second, we look at verses 14 through 17. Now, I know you don't need me to tell you this, but the word adoption means this. I know you know what it means, but just listen. Adoption is a process whereby a person assumes the parenting of another, usually a child, from that person's biological or legal parent or parents. Legal adoptions permanently transfer all rights and responsibilities, along with filiation, from the biological parents to the adoptive parents. Unlike guardianship or other systems designed for the care of the young, adoption is intended to effect a permanent change in status and as such requires societal recognition either through legal or religious sanction. Adoption has been called the crown jewel of the gospel. Of course, the ladies gathered uh, yesterday uh, in, in honor to celebrate the adoption that we look forward to for the Spots family. Now, that may happen soon. It may not happen super soon. But we want to do whatever we can to come, along the spots, come alongside the Spots family. And here in Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, he says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, remember, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, I'd love for you to turn to Galatians chapter four for just a moment. Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four in about four verses says really much the same thing. And it's beautiful. Adoption is beautiful. 
Justification is one thing, to be declared righteous in God's great and holy courtroom. But adoption on top of that is another thing altogether, to be welcomed into the family of God. Now, please see this, Galatians chapter 4, verse 3b, second part of verse 3. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And here's Christmas. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You can think about it in terms of S's. God in his grace, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, he has brought you from being a slave to being a son. Women are absolutely included in that because he talks about sonship because we are sons in the son, capital S. You've been brought from being a slave to a son. Keep the S's going. How? Through sacrifice. The way that we are transferred from slavery to sonship is through the sacrifice of the sent one. God sent his son at the right time, at just the right moment, so we could be rescued from disobedience and from slavery and from fear. Well, J.I. Packer, I read his biography a few years ago. If you've ever seen a picture of J.I. Packer, you might or might not know his name. He wrote the the classic book, Knowing God, which would be a a great one for you to read. Uh, He died recently. If you ever uh, noticed a picture of J.I. Packer, you might have noticed, because it's there to see, you might have seen what looked like a dent in his head. And this is a dent that he uh, incurred in childhood as he collided with a bread truck at a young age. A bread van, uh, literally, J.I. Packer, I think at the age of seven. And, 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 and that just kind of wiped out his opportunity as a young boy to play sports. And so he became immersed in reading and writing. And we are grateful uh, for gifts like J.I. Packer to the church. And before I leave this point, this point number five of adoption, please listen to me. Here is what J.I. Packer says. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Here's what Packer says as well. He says, if I were asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, J.I. Packer, what's the message of the New Testament in three words? I would say adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Romans 3, propitiation. 1 John 2, propitiation. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God on the cross for all of God's people who would ever repent and believe. For you, if you repent and believe, he propitiated, he satisfied, he he turned away the wrath of God the Father on the cross. Adoption through propitiation. Not only does he propitiate the wrath of God, not only does he justify us and declare us righteous in his sight, 
He brings us near. He adopts us and brings us into his family. Well, back to Romans chapter 8. Two quick things, six and seven, and then one final truth. Number six, the Holy Spirit. And we can say this very quickly. And it is just to say that the Holy Spirit dominates this text. Romans chapter 8. And, and just very simply, that's, that's at the very least because the Spirit, capital S, is mentioned in this text no fewer than 18 times. No fewer than 18 times. Now, that is not the case with Romans chapter 7. And in, in a sense, Romans chapter 7, in a sense, is, is, is quite bleak. You have Romans 7 verse 6, which is very important and which speaks about the Spirit. But it's not until we get to Romans chapter 8 that we see life through the Spirit. You will die in your own flesh. We can live through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dominates this text. Number seven, holy, 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 blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 blessed Trinity. The number seven is the Trinity and Romans eight. Yes, it's true that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is never explicitly taught in Scripture, but the Trinity is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. One God in three persons. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Holy, holy, holy. And while it is true that we never have one verse or one chapter or one book that explicitly lays out the teaching or the doctrine of the Trinity, that does not mean that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. It is one of, if not the foundation stones of the Christian faith. And so let me just very quickly just give you two quick examples. The Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our redemption. Look at verse 2. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God the Father sent his son on the cross. Jesus bore our sin, paid our penalty, died as our substitute, bore the wrath of God, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the believer. The three persons of the Trinity are involved very importantly in the work of redemption, Romans 2 through 3, or verses 2 and 3, and then notice verse 9. Notice verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Are you in the flesh or in the Spirit this morning? If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Who is in the believer? Who is in the believer? Look at it again, verse 9. 
You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, who's in us? Christ is in us. The spirit of Christ is in us. The spirit of God is in us. We could multiply these examples here of Romans chapter eight and the Trinity. We've come to the final one. Number one is glory. Number two is creation. Number three, suffering. Number four, no separation and no condemnation. Number five, adoption. Number six, the Holy Spirit, 18 times. Number seven, the Trinity. Finally, number eight. Number eight is good news and a negative word. The negative word is cannot. I close with this. The Romans chapter eight tells us this. It tells us this today. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is good news. It's good news that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot please God on your own. You cannot please God by means of the law. This includes being able to believe unto salvation. This is verse 8. This is verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Would you follow this logic with me for just a moment? I think it is biblical logic. Would it not be pleasing to God for someone to receive his son in salvation and, and become saved? Would that not be pleasing to God for someone to accept that free gift, God's free gift of salvation put forward on the cross and in the resurrection? Would that not be pleasing to God? I'm serious here. But, but Romans 8.8 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God, which would include, I think you look at the context, includes believing for salvation. But the good news of the gospel that Paul writes to these believers as he comes quick on the heels in verse 9 is he says, however, you are not in the flesh if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. We have no hope apart from grace. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, however, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit which means you can please God. My fellow brother and sister, in the midst of your suffering, you can please God. You can please God only through the Holy Spirit and based on the work of Christ. Based on the work of Christ, verses three through four, we can actually live and please God. The Holy Spirit in Romans chapter eight says, you have a stupendous future ahead of you. And it says, while you look forward to that future, while you imitate creation and crane your neck and look forward, you can actually live in a way that pleases God here and now through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together as we also take a moment of silence before we prepare for the Lord's Supper.
Lord, help us. Our affections are weak. We need you to strengthen our affections, to open our eyes, to see our future hope of glory. Lord, help us not to trust our experience, but help us to trust your word. Help us to see our experience in light of your word. Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed. Help us not to be thrown off. Lord, we are very capable of being thrown off even in a major way by our suffering. It blindsides us. We begin to question the very foundations that we know from your word Help us, Lord, to interpret our experience by your word. Help us to look forward. The fact that you are making all things new. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that we have through Christ Jesus, our Lord. With our heads bowed as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, with our heads still bowed, would you join me? In praying what we call the Lord's Prayer, we'll use the King James Version and we'll say debts and debtors when we get to that point. So let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That must have been important to Jesus because those are the two verses that he said right after the Lord's prayer. And then in Matthew chapter 18, you don't have to turn there. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Do you know this story? I'm not going to read the whole thing. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master had patience on him, even on this one who proved himself to be a wicked and unforgiving servant. The truth, as we come to the Lord's Supper, the truth of the gospel is that if we are believers, if we have repented of our sins and trusted only in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have been forgiven much. We have been forgiven much. So how could we ever live 
in any type of perpetual way that would be with an unforgiving spirit. But that horizontal is not the main focus. First of all, we must come to to the foot of the cross and to see just how much we have been forgiven, just how holy the Lord God is. 